0: I trust that your Bibles are still open there to Daniel chapter 2. I know that was a long scripture reading, but may I remind you, those 10 minutes are the only inerrant part of our service today. And God's people need God's Word. Without it, we perish and every second spent reading his word is time well spent. If you're wondering, though, how I'm going to cover 49 verses in 40 minutes, just know that I'm wondering the same thing uh, this morning, but I'll do my best. I sleep well most evenings, except for Saturday nights. That's because I sometimes have my own recurring dream. In the dream, it's Sunday morning. I'm standing in the pulpit, Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's another church, sometimes it's a stadium. But no matter where I am in the dream, the same thing happens every time. I open my Bible and I look down to discover that everything is blank. My sermon notes are blank, the pages in my Bible are blank, and I flip feverishly through nervous trying to find my place. And for the life of me, I cannot remember what I'm supposed to be preaching about. And like people, you know, if you have one of those dreams, you wake up in a cold sweat, and I always take it as a reminder, and I go into the other room and make sure I printed my sermon notes uh, before I come to church the next morning. I'll tell my wife, though, sometimes, hey, I had that dream again. And she's quick to remind me, hey, remember, it was just a dream. Nebuchadnezzar's wife could not say that to him, and if she did, she was wrong. Because what happened to him in Daniel chapter 2 was a dream, but it was clearly not just a dream. It was oh so much more. What happened to him in this chapter was not just a dream, but Even more, as we will see, it was also an opportunity for him, for the magicians and conjurers, for the the, the cabinet of Babylon, and for us to be confronted with one of the most important truths in the entire universe. A simple truth, a timeless truth, but a life-changing truth. The kind of truth that we need on our sleepless nights. The kind of truth we need when, when, when we are, have nagging questions. The kind of truth that we need when we're trying to make sense of the mysteries of our own experience and our own lives. You say, what is that incredible truth? Well, let's discover it in the text together. Verse 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar had had this recurring dream. Ecclesiastes 5 says that dreams come to those who either worry too much or work too much. Well, being the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar was probably doing both. His empire was bugging him, his enemies were bugging him, and now this dream was bugging him. By the way, the details of Genesis 2, excuse me, of Daniel 2:1 are supposed to remind us of Genesis 41. There we find a, a man named Pharaoh, another powerful man who had a powerful dream, who was searching for a powerful answer to his dream. Which, by the way, brothers and sisters, is a great reminder, just because you have power doesn't mean you have answers. Money can buy you a comfortable bed, but it cannot buy you a good night's sleep. And Pharaoh had all that, but he didn't know what his dream meant. Nebuchadnezzar had all that, but he also didn't know what his dream meant. So in verses 2 and 3, he calls the conjurers and magicians and sorcerers and Chaldeans to him, looking for an answer. My kids described, I said, what do you imagine this group looked like? And they had described a, a line of men with long beards and pointy hats. You know, wizards and psychics, that kind of thing is what they think. But honestly, for, for our purposes, these guys are a lot more like what we would think of as psychiatrists, therapists. I mean, think about it. I, I don't know if you ever read this chapter, but Sigmund Freud would love Daniel, too. What is the dream? There's a meaning in the dream. And so he calls them to find some answers. And notice in verse 4 the men are confident. They said, "Tell us the dream and we will declare the interpretation to you." And the reason that they could do this or they thought they could do this was because they had stacks and stacks of books in the Babylonian library. Dream manual archaeologists have uncovered these giant books that were filled with pictures and symbols and numbers and colors and they would be able to connect this to this and hear the dream and be able to say oh here's the meaning of this and so with confidence they say him tell us the dream and we'll give you an interpretation that's true we'll give you the interpretation that is trustworthy just tell us the dream but of course Nebuchadnezzar says not so fast I know how you guys are, I know what a huckster is, I know what a charlatan is. If you're really in touch with the other side, if you really have insight into these things, then you can tell me not only the interpretation, but I want to fact check you. Can you tell me also the dream? And Nebuchadnezzar uses a carrot and a stick. He says, "You, you tell me these two things and I will either make you super rich or I will make you super dead. I will turn your house into an outhouse, and I will rip you limb from limb. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar is a piece of work, okay? This guy, do not be a boss like this, please. Whatever you do, he is all over the map. But they have this impasse, and they realize he's not going to budge. So in verse 11, they, they say to him, what you're asking us to do, it's impossible. This is unreasonable. You are asking us to do something that only the gods, the little g gods can do. No mortal man can do the thing that you've told us to do. And so by the time you get to verse 11, the the frustration of of this story, it builds. Because in verse 11, you're no closer to an answer with verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know. The magicians don't know. The conjurers don't know. The sorcerers don't know. The Chaldeans don't know. And now they say, no one can know. No human being on earth could know what you're asking us to do. Well, upon hearing this, Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage. Verse 12 says he became indignant and furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. One pastor said that Nebuchadnezzar, because he was not at peace with himself, was not at peace with anyone else. There's an old saying in counseling that hurt people hurt people. That doesn't have to be the case, but it often is the case. Like a wounded animal, when you try to help a wounded animal, it will bite and claw and scratch and hiss and growl. Why? Because it doesn't know how else to react. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's not at peace with himself, so he's trying to, and he doesn't know what to do. By the way, that's not just Nebuchadnezzar, that's a lot of people. People who are searching for answers. People who can't make sense of their questions and their experiences. People who can't sleep at night. People who, like it says in verse 1, their spirit is troubled within them. Their heart is pounding, they're deeply bothered, they're desperate for answers and craving the truth and wanting to make sense of this world. Wanting to make sense of what they they feel, wanting to make sense of what their, their lives tell them. We all have moments like this. Moments when, when things are confusing and experiences happen and, and, and it rocks our world and we're not sure and we want to find answers, but we just don't seem to have answers. And we, deep down, we know that we don't know. Well, nobody knows. So nobody lives. Verse 13, the decree went forth that all the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends. These men were not included in the first group. They were probably like um, the magician's assistants, we would say. They were the apprentices. uh, They're interns still. But they were swept up in this call here of genocide. So Daniel wants to know what's going on, so he asks, what's happening out? And So they tell the story, and he's not quite sure, and he says, hey, maybe we can help. Give us an opportunity to figure this out. By the way, it's really interesting in the story how Nebuchadnezzar says to the wise men, you're just buying time, and then somehow Daniel is able to buy time. Figure that one out. But Daniel says, give us some time, and they get it. And so what happens? Verse 17, Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might, watch this, request compassion from the God of heaven. Concerning this mystery. Now this is key to this whole story. Daniel, upon hearing this news, returned to his friends, and together they turned to God. When when moments of crisis strike, should we not do the same? Should we not... Turn to each other. Daniel shows us that men and women of faith need other men and women of faith to help them through the trials and the hardships and the moments that we can't make sense of. And and to be even more specific to the text here, when, when we're going through trials and hardships, we should not simply pray for each other, but like Daniel and his friends, we should pray with each other. We don't just believe in the saints, we believe in the communion of saints. My friends, what is stopping you from picking up the phone to call a church member in need who's at home with COVID saying, can I pray with you? Not just for you, but to actually be with one another in fellowship. That's what Daniel and his friends did. They didn't know where else to turn. They had to lean on each other and bear each other's burdens in this crisis, in this moment. By the way, we also see here that we should never underestimate the power of prayer in times of crisis. These guys had every reason to flip out. Every reason to be stressed upon hearing this news. But they perfectly embody Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. That says what? Be anxious for nothing. But in all things, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known To God. They turn exactly to to Him to pray. When everything hits the fan and the bottom drops out of your life and and you find yourself living in Babylon, is your first instinct to worry, or is it to pray? They prayed. And why do they pray? Well, he tells us in verse 18 look again, that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning what? This mystery. Now, that is a key word moving forward, so make a note. Let, let's look out for it. That's a, that's a buzzword in the rest of this story. This, what is a mystery? Well, it's simple. A mystery is something you don't know. Remember Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine, right? Every episode, they didn't know who was the bad guy, and, of course, till the end, then they did, right? That's what a mystery is. It's just simply something you do not know. Well, this dream, this interpretation, it's a mystery. And so up to verse 18, what have we learned in this chapter? That the frustration level is through the roof, the stress level's through the roof, the stakes are high, why? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know, the magicians don't know, the conjurers don't know, the wizards don't know, the Chaldeans don't know, the sorcerers don't know, no man on earth knows, Daniel doesn't know, Shadrach doesn't know, Meshach doesn't know, Abednego doesn't know. Nobody knows. And they're going to lose everything. Life is filled with mysteries. Questions that we want answers to that we don't always know. Why did we have another miscarriage? Why did my company have to shut down? Why do I feel the way that I feel deep down? Why do I have those thoughts and those emotions that just will not leave? They haunt me all the time. Every one of us at times wants to trade our question marks for exclamation points. But we don't know. And we ask our friends and we ask our neighbors and they don't know. And nobody knows. And in Babylon at this point, nobody knows. Until we get to verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. For the first time, someone in Babylon knows, and that someone is Daniel. By the way, many people will point out in this text here that Daniel prayed, but they miss the fact that Daniel actually prayed twice. Did you see that? In verse 18, it says he made a request of God. Then in verse 19, it says he blessed God. Two different prayers. My friends, listen to me. All children and all Christians should be taught to say both please and thank you. Isn't that what he does? Verse 18 is please. And verse 19 is thank you. In verses 20 to 23, Daniel then and his friends, they get together and they have what we might call a personal praise party. You ever had one of those? When the answer comes through, I mean, exactly, you could not have designed this, created this, the bill comes in for $481.79 and a refund check shows up for $481.79, whoa, whoa, I was just thinking about this person. And they say, you know, they call you and want to get with you. and You go, wow. Daniel and his friends realize this is, this is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. They prayed and God answered. And so they have this praise party. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, okay, that's cool. That's good. I appreciate it. But would you please get to the dream? And would you get to the interpretation? Preacher, would you please get to the good stuff? Brothers and sisters, this is the good stuff. I can prove it to you. In this passage here, if you notice, verse 19 would make perfectly good sense if you skip down. Verse 19 says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the night vision. Then go to verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Ariok. That makes perfect sense. The action continues in the story. My point is, anytime the Bible throws in stuff you think you don't need, that's actually the stuff you really need. God's not a college student filling a word count, you know, just throwing words in. When he puts in stuff, you think, I don't know, why does he put that? Pay attention. Luke chapter one, and Joseph was engaged to be married to a virgin named Mary, why did you have to tell us her sexual history? What does that have to do? Because it's really important. It doesn't say that about every woman in the Bible. But in that story, in that little detail, it matters. And so in this story, in this moment, this prayer is the bullseye of this chapter. You say, yeah, preacher, we get it, we get it. Daniel knows, Daniel knows. That's not the point. Look what he says in verse 20. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Then verse 22, it is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. The point of chapter 2 is not that Daniel knows. It's that Daniel knows because God knows. God knows. God knows. I told you there's a simple but life-changing truth in this text, and that's it. God knows. Those two words can do more for you than what two sleeping pills can do. God knows. God knows. We we have a lot of names for God Lord, Almighty, Father, King, Everlasting. If I can sort of tongue in cheek add one more, Daniel teaches us God is also Mr. Know It All. He knows. We can rest in the omniscience of God because God knows. The first step in finding the answers to the mystery of life is this two word truth, God knows. The first step of faith as a Christian, day by day, is to start with this basic understanding, God knows. But so many of us like Nebuchadnezzar think we can figure it out, we can do it, we can solve it, we can do it in our own strength and we want to lean on our own understanding. This is why people take philosophy classes and stay up all night long, binge-watching TED Talks on YouTube, because they're trying to figure out all the mysteries of life. My friends, every question that you can ask of yourself that you don't seem to understand, who am I, where did I come from, where are we going, what is the meaning of life, the beginning to answer of all of those, God knows. And until you come to terms with those two words, your heart is going to continue to pound inside of you. And you're going to be restless. And you won't be able to sleep. And you will search all over and not find what you're looking for. Nebuchadnezzar has questions, but not answers. All of us have those things. Moments when we feel like we want to know and figure it out, and we can't seem to find it. And what do we do? We we wrestle with our own heart and our struggles and our insecurities, and we want to do it, and what do we do? And the whole time we're leaning on our own understanding. And many people, they get to the point where they, they can't seem to answer those questions and so what do they do? They just numb themselves with eating and drinking and scrolling and watching and they think I can't seem to come to terms with my heart so I'm just gonna kind of ignore it and move on. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 says, God is greater than your heart and he knows all things. He knows what's in your heart. He knows the thoughts you think that nobody else thinks. He knows the questions to the answers that we have. He says in verse 22, he knows what is in the darkness. Some of us have very dark moments. Anxious thoughts, maybe thoughts of despair, maybe even thoughts of self-harm. And you keep those things tucked away, thoughts of, of conflict and thoughts of, of, of sin and all those things. But my friend, God knows what is in the darkness the darkness of your future, the darkness of your life choices, the darkness of where things are headed. And Daniel says, not only does he know the darkness, but he also has the light that you need in your darkness. My friends, if God knows what is in the darkness, you can walk into the future with a God like that. You don't have to lean on your own understanding. Because you don't have to understand. You just understand that He understands. As Corey Ten Boom famously said, you can trust an unknown future to a known God. That's exactly what Daniel sees and experiences here. God no. I wish I could spend more time on that, but I still got half the chapter to cover. So watch what happens next. Verse 24, Daniel says to Arioch. notice, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Boy, that's an incredible moment. That deserves its own sermon. Here was his chance to get rid of his political and theological opponents, and yet he deals with them with dignity and compassion. He could have snuffed out the competition but he doesn't. He says, don't kill those guys. They need to know what I'm about to tell you. And then watch what Daniel does. He's brought before Nebuchadnezzar in verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar says, are you able to make known to me the dream? That's the question of this story. Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't know. Magicians don't know, conjurers don't know, sorcerers don't know, Chaldeans don't know. They say that no man knows, do you know? I love Daniel's answer. Verse 27. As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Daniel could have walked in and just plopped down the answer, but notice he brilliantly and wisely takes a moment to put the pagan philosophies in their place. He shows Nebuchadnezzar the failure of his own system. My friends, a a godless worldview is an insufficient worldview. It is going to break down at some point. It cannot answer all the questions that you want to answer. Which, by the way, I love what Daniel does here. You know, everybody wants to ask questions of Christians like, you guys need to answer this and this and this and this and this. Sometimes, like Daniel, we should turn around and go, all right, fine, you answer it. Because I promise your answer is not going to be better than mine. Daniel says, you know that your system's bankrupt. You know that your worldview can't sustain this. Buddhism and Mormonism and activism, they will hand you what they say are answers, but I promise you they're not transcendent answers. They will not last. So Nebuchadnezzar asked, do you know? And Daniel, who could have taken all the credit for himself, doesn't. He says, your men do not know, verse 28, however, there is a God in heaven. You don't need to know that I know, you need to know that God knows. Nebuchadnezzar, God knows? Reminds me of a story I once heard a pastor say, He said that before a service one Sunday, he was uh, standing out greeting people, talking to them, and uh, a guy came up, first-time visitor, and he saw his microphone, I guess, and he said, are you the preacher? And he said, yeah. And the visitor said, oh, so you're the guy with all the answers. And the pastor said, no, I'm the guy that points to the guy with all the answers. Isn't that what Daniel's doing here? Nebuchadnezzar says, are you the guy? He says, I'm not the guy. I just know the guy. I'm here to introduce you to the guy. He says, there is a God in heaven. He says, God has revealed a mystery to you. There's that word again. The mystery has been revealed to you. He's told you the future. He tells him this was not just a dream, it was actually a prophecy. By the way, predicting is something men do, prophecies are what God does. And so far he's batting a thousand with all of his prophecies. He tells him this was more than just a dream, it was a prophecy. Now we finally get to the dream in verse 31, we read it earlier, I don't have to go through it again, tall statue, all kinds of metal, the metal is going down, you know, heads and shoulders, knees and toes, right, it's, all right? Different kinds of metal, head of gold, shoulders of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, this huge, impressive statue. And so he tells them all this and the details. Verse 36 this was the dream. Now he says, We will tell its interpretation to the king. Now, this is the part where I promise some of you start salivating your, your prophetic goosebumps start going off, and you get really excited. And you immediately begin attaching certain nations to certain body parts. In fact, some of your Bibles probably do. Mine actually has little subheadings. It says, above verse 36, says Babylon. Verse 39 says Medo-Persian Greece. Verse 40, it says Rome. But may I remind you, those, those little headings are not in the original. Furthermore, Daniel doesn't say what any body part is but the first one. And he doesn't even say it's Babylon. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. That's the only one he explains. Now people get very caught up and they start running with it. They say, oh yeah, and they start labeling all the parts based on what we know in history and other events. And they'll say, oh yes, and then you get down further down the statue and this big toe was this king in the ancient world and this, this, this other toe here was this president from the 1930s and this little piggy went wee 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 all the way home or something like that, you know? And they get all excited, bit out of shape. L- listen, can I, can I just remind you of one really... S- this is the interpretation. When we go beyond this, that let me interpret it. No, no, it. Literally, he says, this is the interpretation. When Jesus gives a parable and interprets it, we don't have to guess. We know what we're supposed to know. And here he says, I'll tell you what it is. And so Daniel explains to him, here, here's the parts of this that you're supposed to know. If he wanted us to know, he would have told us, this is what you need to know. You say, but why doesn't Daniel tell us all the other stuff and, that we want to know? Simple. The point of the dream is not the statue. It's the stone. The point of the dream is the stone. Brothers and sisters, the greatest mistake you can make with this dream is to intimately know all of these kingdoms and yet be ignorant of the kingdom of God. You want to know the interpretation of the statue? Simple. The statue is doomed. It's doomed! It honestly doesn't matter what nation, what empire you attach to which metal, it's going to be pulverized. And that's where the whole interpretation leads us. By the way, the greatest irony in this whole chapter, maybe my favorite part, favorite part, is did you catch how the story began in verse 4? The magicians show up, and the king says, I got this thing. And in verse 4, they first, thing, first words out of their mouth are what? "O king, live forever. Well, that's, God had a good sense of humor to throw that in there, don't you think? What's the point of the dream? Nebuchadnezzar will not live forever. His kingdom will not live forever. The kingdoms of this world will not live forever because brothers and sisters, there is only one who lives forever. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to get that square. You need to get that right. You say, but statues, it's so big. Yes, but the last time I checked, statues are not as big as mountains. The mountain towers over the statue after crushing and demolishing it. What do we know about this mountain, this stone? Verse 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people, and it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever and ever. This stone is clearly a prophecy, represent God's kingdom, as he says, which is intertwined with God's king. You cannot really separate the kingdom from the king or the king from the kingdom. They go hand in hand. In fact, that's when Jesus shows up, he says what? The kingdom is here. The statue here is made out of metal, which is the work of human hands, but this stone, notice, is made out of uncut, unhewn rock that is not made with any human hand. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Babies require men, but not this baby, because he is not man-made. He is heaven-sent, like a rock coming out of heaven. Also, this stone will crush these kingdoms. Jesus said in Matthew 21, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He was speaking of himself, and those who fall on this stone will be crushed, and those on whom this stone will fall, they will be pulverized. Christ is the stone, the cornerstone that you can tie your life into by faith and be part of a kingdom that will endure forever, a redemption that is yours through faith in his death and resurrection. And so either you can be redeemed by him or you can be crushed by him. It's your only two options he says that it will grow into a mountain that will fill the whole earth In Luke 1 Mary was told by the angel he will rule over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end my friends I beg of you do not focus here on the wrong kingdom in Daniel 2 despite what people think Daniel is saying listen that, that Babylon was not the epicenter of the universe. And my friends, our own nation is not the epicenter of the universe. I'm sure I'll get an email for this one. But if you, even if you believe strongly in American exceptionalism, America is not an exception to this. God's kingdom will not exist side by side with any country. And when all is said and done, it will not be a Republican on the throne or a Democrat on the throne. It will be God's stone on the throne. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but okay, preacher, I I get all that, but would you please tell me the exegetically, hermeneutically, significantly, literarily details. I I came this morning because I will okay, fine. Here it is. He's got the whole world (laughs) in it, right? That's that's the point. He is making it clear to Nebuchadnezzar. My my friends, please understand this. Nebuchadnezzar was not writing Babylon's story. Congress is not writing America's story. The Taliban is not writing Afghanistan's story. If anyone is writing the story of the nations, it's God. As others have said, the arc of history is long, but it inevitably bends towards Jesus Christ. And so Daniel is reminding us of this truth. God knows. God knows the nations, God knows the rulers, God knows the empires, God knows the seasons, God knows the times, God knows the epics, God knows the past, God knows the present, God knows the future, and in the end, God knows that Jesus Christ wins. And you can build your life on that foundation, Daniel said. So the question is not does Daniel know. Daniel knows. The question is, do you know? Do you know that God knows? Do you know that God knows what's in the darkness that you don't get? And that you can take him by the hand and trust him? That you can follow him? Because he declares the end from the beginning. See, if we knew all the details, I think we would all just be a nervous basket case. God says, I'll tell you what you need to know. By the way, I still don't think that's the main point of the story. You say, what? We covered the dream. We covered the interpretation. The chapter's not over. Look at what happens. At the end of verse 45, he says, God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. My friends, this chapter is not about Nebuchadnezzar's bad dream it is about God's good revelation. The magician said, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation that is true and trustworthy. But they couldn't do it. But Daniel comes along in the face of a hostile world, in the face of an unbelieving world, and he says, I am telling you, God's revelation is true and trustworthy. And he declares to them what God Has said. And then verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, did homage to Daniel, literally worships Daniel, gave orders to present him an offering and a fragrant incense. And the king said, Look at verse 47 Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, and there it is again, a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. The point of the story, I don't think, is not just that Daniel knows, and it's not just that God knows. The point of the story is that now Nebuchadnezzar knows that God knows. I said it last week. Daniel was given success in Babylon so that he might be a witness to Nebuchadnezzar, and this is the first opportunity for that. Daniel's now leveraging his position to make known the glory and the kingdom of God to a man who would not know otherwise. I love the fact when Daniel shows up in front of Nebuchadnezzar, back in verse 26 or 7, when he shows up, he does not say to him, here is the answer from heaven. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, people all around us, your workplace, your own children, teenagers, roommates, They think that what they want and need is answers. I'm telling you, what they need is God. God. To know that God knows. This week you will meet people like Nebuchadnezzar, bothered by their experiences, riddled with questions. They can't make sense of it all. Brothers and sisters, this is your opportunity to look them in the eye and say, you know what, my friend, I'll be honest, you don't know. I don't know. But I do know that God knows. And his word is true and trustworthy. So trust in him with all your Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we know that Daniel chapter 2, we have just barely scratched the surface of the beauty of this chapter and its message. But Father, I know that there are some in this room who no doubt feel the weight in their own heart. That they're walking through darkness, unsure about the future. And Father, we don't all have the answers to what we need, but we know you do. So I pray, O Lord, that you would calm our hearts with faith, comfort our weary souls with trust, and Lord, help us to have a godly satisfaction that, you know what, sometimes we don't know, but you do. Lord, would you heal us of our worries and our anxiety, and our fears. And would you please help us to grow in our faith? That says, our God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, and we will trust him. Make us good ambassadors this week to the Nebuchadnezzars around us, that we might make it clear, there is a God in heaven.